Welcome to DC Signal to Noise on this Friday on a very crazy week. I'm John Harris, joined by Jim Wiesmeyer of ProFarmer, our diviner of signal and noise. And a, a lot of both to sort through this week, Jim Wiesmeyer. Yes. Uh, I want to start with another reminder that if you are listening to this podcast and want to join in the conversation next time, um, join us at 2 p.m. Eastern on the AgriTalk Facebook page where we stream this live as we're recording it. And you can send us questions in real time and join the conversation as we're doing this. Um, and a lot of questions and comments coming in right off the bat. So looking forward to getting those. Keep them coming and drive the conversation here. Um, Jim, let's start. I, I don't think we can we can start any conversation this week without talking about the events in D.C. and the impeachment votes. Um, just first of all, your initial reaction uh, to the House voting to impeach. Uh, President Trump and sending it to the Senate that doesn't look like it's going to take it up until after Joe Biden has been sworn in as president. Yeah, John, that's the weirdness of it. I, what didn't surprise me in the House, because I think that there is fervent hatred, if you will, with Trump on, on the Democratic uh, you know, leadership there. The, Democrat, the Democrats are trying to remove Trump from office even after he leaves office. That, that's just weird to me. Uh, but I understand the animosity, okay? But the Democrats are proposing, John, to use impe- impeachment to disqualify Trump from forever running for you know federal office again. I think that's their r- real focus here. And frankly, a number of Republicans who don't want to go so public with it. But the Democrats say that feature requires only a majority vote in the Senate. But boy, my talks with uh, constitutional scholars say that they think the, the Constitution really requires a conviction before public. right yeah and that yeah, everything two thirds of the senate would have to vote. well it's yeah it's, it's two-thirds of the senate for a conviction first and then once they get a conviction then they can come back with a simple majority for the votes to Absolutely. uh keep him from from holding federal office but you've got to have like you said that two-thirds majority for the conviction first before anything else uh can be done in the impeachment process um, and I get what you're saying, Jim, but I, as I said last week, I really think that there needs to be some something done uh, at a formal level to rebuke this. And, and I would agree with when you have a president who has incited a riot against another branch of government, I think that it is warranted to bar him from holding federal office, him or her, uh, from holding federal office again. And um, so... You know, I think this this action is warranted because there is no other uh, mechanism uh, to really accomplish that um, other than you could argue that if President Trump were to be in uh, be convicted of inciting an insurrection, then he would be barred from uh, holding federal office again by Section three of the 14th Amendment. Um, But that's a little more of a a more intricate uh, action. Um, and not a formal rebuke like uh, a, an impeachment uh, conviction would be. But again, look at the first time he was impeached by the House. Uh, they took a long time, uh, you know, you know, discussing it with papers and things like that, research, if you will. This thing 
really went went faster than an HBO series on television, you know, a short series. So, again, that raises question marks, too. And usually, you know, Trump didn't even have the opportunity to defend himself. Now, I know he's done a lot of things that make your hair curl. Okay, but uh, he was he has not yet been convicted. And that's why the Senate uh, maneuver is so important here. Uh, But until then, I just don't think you can deny anyone office until they've had a bona fide uh, trial, if you will. And that always has taken place in the Senate, not the House. Yeah, which which leads me to be somewhat sympathetic to this notion that's being bandied about of um, somewhat delaying the Senate trial so that that process uh, can play. Of course, so the process can play out. Of course, the other argument to that is they're saying they don't want it to get in the way of of Biden's first hundred days agenda. that's immaterial to me, but but I think that before there is the Senate trial, it should be a true trial, and there should be uh, time to lay out the evidence on both sides on that, yeah. and they're still gathering the evidence on both sides on that. Well, I had to chuckle somewhat, John, when they said they need time in the 100 days. Let's have the Senate work five days a week like farmers do, if yes. not more, of course. They only work three days a week now, so they're saying take the morning for business and afternoon for the impeachment process, you know, process or vice versa. Come on, give me a break. They can they can stay in town until it's done. So I don't ever buy time arguments. And and what's so important about 100 days? We saw that with Trump, the same type of routine. That's more the media mumble jumble than anything else. Indeed. So uh, how do you see this playing out uh, over the next uh, weeks and possibly months? I see it trying to extract total pain, you know, as long as they can. And I want to I want to see and hear uh, outgoing Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, his official position on it. Not that he is thinking about it or hasn't made a decision, because if he were to say no for impeachment, then there's not a chance that the Senate would impeach him. If he says that he will vote, would vote for impeachment, then it becomes an interesting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, vote count. So uh, that's the signal, if you will, John, that uh, I'm looking for, because I think uh, now, uh, uh, you know, McConnell is a very, very important person on his way out as the leader of the Senate. Well, isn't it a pretty strong statement already that McConnell has not pushed back against that reporting from uh, the New York Times this week? Well, initially, he he basically said uh, there was some report saying uh, he was in favor of impeachment. And he said that was too strong. He has just not made up his mind. And I thought when I first saw the thing that he had made up his mind, I thought that that doesn't sound like the McConnell. I know he usually ponders it for a while. Plus, it's not come up for a vote anyway. Plus, they have to they have to. To, uh, hear the process, you know, what kind of uh, 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 reasoning, you know, are they going to use? But I will tell you, in the Republican Party, John, they're dividing the Trump presidency, and I said this on AgriTalk, into mm-hmm. the long period before November 3rd that Trump honestly had a major accomplishments, and also the time period after November 3rd, when it was mostly disaster 
after disaster. So th- this is the hard part of this. You know, you've got the Republicans torn right now, and that's going to be years impact there. I think you're beginning more than beginning to see the multiple split in the Republican Party because of the dichotomies between, you know, the different factions, the Trump Party, the traditional Republican Party, and the middle-of-the-road Republicans. So there's three parties right there, potential in the years ahead. If that sounds like Europe, it, it, it is. And then you have the Democrats. Uh, I think that's going to come later. Their fracturing is going to come later after uh, the far left doesn't get not just most of what they want, everything what they want. There's going to be carping there. So they're going to have to go through this divorce pattern too. Bottom line, I think we're, we're due for three to five political parties over the next decade. And that's not a bad thing to me. That's not a well, bad that's thing. what I was going to mention is that, um, you know, you've got two political parties that have more and more gone to representing the fringe uh, uh, the fringes of, of the political spectrum here in the U.S., and there really isn't much of anything representing those in the middle. So, is it is a third party or fourth party not that bad of an idea? Oh no, I think it would be a great idea because I don't know when I'm I'm soon to maybe go back out on the speaking circuit and network again. I can't wait, but uh, th- that's what I was hearing from a lot of uh, you know people that they don't they didn't think either party. Really really spoke to them. But, you know, here's another angle. You know, Biden, uh, last evening in Wilmington, when he announced uh, his, you know, f- you know, first of two parts on his, his COVID aid, he promised to lay out a Build Back Better recovery plan before a joint session of Congress next month. Now, I guess that's the State of the Union. I'm not quite sure. But think about that. If the, if the nerves are still frazzled, if this impeachment process is still going on, can you imagine? And this follows the, what was it, the last one? It seems like forever, where the Speaker of the House deplorably uh, tore up uh, the copy of uh, Trump's you know, speech at the State of the Union address. So that doesn't sound like uh, trying to get along to me if that were to occur. But I, I know Biden is probably very nervous about this because he said last night he wants to unveil historic investments in infrastructure manufacturing, innovation, and clean energy. Uh, that's hard to do when you've got a fractured uh, you know, Congress and party, not just in the U.S., but across this great country. Yeah, it, well, and I would add to that uh, leadership on both sides of the dome on both parties that's solely interested in political gamesmanship and not really about uh, addressing the needs of the American public right now. Well, look at D.C. right now. I haven't seen it like this since nine eleven. Since shortly after nine eleven, when I went downtown, that's when I worked downtown every day, and I saw a, a policeman on every corner, and I saw airplanes going back and forth. You know, the black ones. I forget what they Blackhawks, I guess. Yeah, uh, and and that was scary. Uh, but this one, I think, might rival that with over twenty thousand troops there a week before the almost a week before the inauguration. This this country, based on the emails and talks I'm having into the Midwest and elsewhere, it, they're they're not just upset; they're very upset. Well, in fact, we're even seeing it reflected in some of the comments we're getting here. We'll get to those uh, in just a little bit. I I do want to point out uh, briefly that um, two of the Republican votes for impeachment came from farmers. um, And I know I'm going to 
brochure's name at David Val- Valadao. I think it's something like that from California's dairy farmer. Valdau. Yeah, Valdau. And and uh, Dan Newhouse from Washington State, uh, farmer near Yakima. So um, two of those votes did did come from uh, farmers out on the West Coast. Well, they're swing districts, and it's a vote of conscience, uh, I would say. So I'm not I'm not going to fault any one for for voting a certain way on something that important uh, they had to go through probably a lot of internal you know mashing and meshing you know with themselves uh uh on that one i i uh although in the case of uh cheney uh republican in the house she's third in leadership i may have some other comments on that i th- just think she would have been better off not just to restrain from voting when your leadership uh you know does that i think it raises questions but that's just me all right and uh, you know try to flip through some of these comments here um and uh, again i'm not going to go into the ones claiming that the uh, that uh, we did not have a free and fair election. We did have a free and fair election. We need to get over that. And, well, the, and, here, here's, and what, here's what it is, John, on that one. I, I, I know, and you've heard the same thing, that the hurtfulness uh, amongst the people who did not win this election, their party. I, I, I understand that. However, what occurred, I don't know why Trump did what he did. Maybe he believed his lawyers. But the bottom line, I tell my family in the Midwest who are so upset and who, uh, the ones who are pro-Trump uh, and then some, uh, I tell them, look, the lawyers that Trump had, Giuliani, etc., were saying things publicly, but then when they went into court, they didn't repeat those same things. And uh, because why? They couldn't, they couldn't prove it. Yeah, they didn't have the evidence. They didn't to take have to court, the yeah. evidence. So if there was evidence, you don't pay as much money as Trump is, has been doing. What twenty thousand dollars a day for Giuliani? Boy, you talk about well that he says he's not. Spend. He's now not. Or reports are that he's not going to pay it now. I don't blame him now. Well, that's yeah, I got. But you know, that's what I say. That that you know, evidence has to be shown, and you know. But then some people come back saying they threw it away and things like that. Well, you know, then you, and you say, okay, you know, next question doesn't solve it. But the, 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 these things are going to linger. There's no doubt in my mind. They're going to linger for a long time. And that's not to say elections aren't without fault. Um, and so I think that Congress should take up election reform uh, in this next Congress. Uh, one, to clean up the, the, the faults that are still there. And two, to restore confidence. But what does Nancy Pelosi do as Speaker of the House? She puts H.R. Bill number one, the first one that shows yeah, the major uh-huh. focus. She gets into codifying even more changes for the election process of some of the of the potential snags that we saw on November the 3rd are the days leading up to that. Uh, that does not help, John. It just does no, it not. doesn't. No, it does not. All right, enough about the election. Let's get in. Let's sure. go uh, some of the questions because some of the questions we're getting uh, tie into some of the topics we're going to talk about. Um, from Terry, is the CFAP round of payments referred to as CFAP three? If not, what is CFAP three? And uh, no, we're talking about leftover oh, you mean CFAP. The, the ones today, I'm confused. They they because they announced supplemental. 
you know, right. We, no, we've still got, yeah, we got CFAP2 money to the tune of what, $2.3 billion. It's actually yeah. CFAP1 and 2, unused funding for CFAP1 and 2. They've made some very good changes, and really that will help contract livestock producers, primarily uh, hogs and poultry, uh, into getting, uh, what was the payment? $17 a head, I would think, in hogs. And that's a chunk of change. Uh, And a number of other changes that, uh, again, if they had five more chances to do CFAP, they'd probably get it pretty good. You know, so that tells me USDA continues to learn from the faults of the uh, other two, you know, CFAPs. But this does not uh, uh, include CFAP, what I call CFAP 3, that right. Congress passed uh, December the 21st. That's the, uh, what what usually known as the $600, uh, you know, checks, you know, you know, for the direct payments. That's above and beyond. That's $13 billion for agriculture. That's separate from what they announced today, the up to $2.3 billion. And I'm just looking at the language. For a number of producers out there, this will hit home. FSA is going to use 100% um, instead of 85% of the 2019 Agris Coverage County Option, ARC uh, County, ARC CO, benchmark yield to calculate payments when the APH is not available. That the, To me, that's a you know, major change as well. Mm-hmm. And sign up for most producers. I think this uh, $70 per head payment is going to automatically be made, but it's going to run from January the 19th to the uh, to February the uh, you know 26 so bottom line this is more cash flow out there and especially to the contract uh, you know producers uh, who really need it john yeah and eric our uh, producer if you throw up that graphic to show just how dramatically this uh, will uh, impact those contract growers again most of these are are going to be pork but uh, quite a number of, of poultry contract growers and some others but so that shows you uh, from uh, Farm Bureau, just uh, where that money is going and how much of it is going to those contract growers. And as you point out, Jim, uh, this is a group that needs it. They are they, unlike other sectors of agriculture, are not seeing a market resurgence right now. Uh, they have been struggling. They are going to see uh, some increasing uh, competition from China as that uh, country gets their their pork herd back in line after African swine fever. So uh, th- this is a sector that that needs it and hasn't uh, hasn't been able to uh, latch on to that CFAP money up until this point. Yes, and you can see, and this I want to point out that this uh, you know chart. Yeah, you said from Farm Bureau, John Newton, he's their top economist. John has just been so good. You talk about an effective communicator who knows how to do charts. So I I constantly uh, you know congratulate him in my emails to him, and we converse uh, off and on. And you can see his asterisk on the support for contract growers that rounds to one point nine you know, billion dollars out of that 2.3, and that includes the swine, chicken, uh, you know, eggs and turkeys. But this is a fairly good forecast estimate that of his of, of how those segments, bro- you know, br- you know, break out the 150, uh, you know, you know, million, I guess it would be, yes, uh, top up payments for, uh, you, know, you, you know, swine producers. Uh, then you've got turf grass and sod, you know, pullets and byproducts were added for the first time, 100 million. That's good for that industry. And and then the top up for CFAP2, sales-based commodities, uh, 30 million. And then the top up for price trigger commodities, 20 million. So again, a surprise. Uh, you know, this was a surprise because uh, it caught us 
all off guard and as we were going right on to agri-talk almost i had to get the information out i thought oh my goodness but anyway bottom line um this shows uh, usda can act fast i think this shows that the omb is pumping out rules office management and budget like you wouldn't believe in the waning days of the trump administration john and I would encourage anybody out there that uh, I think everybody watching and listening to this is interested in ag policy. Follow John Newton on Twitter. Um, you're going to see a chart as informative as that, if not more so, just about every day. Yeah. Um, is just like you said, a, a great educator. So, um, and John's background, I mean, he knows his policy, you know, he, he worked at a number of, of, you know, positions where he had to learn policy and he's an expert, uh, graphic person. So yeah. yes, I, I haven't utilized uh, farm bureau charts. It, uh, I've utilized more since he's got there than my first 40 years in the business. Uh, that tells you everything right there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, another uh, question coming in here, if I can find it, um, from Farmer Tom. Can you talk about USDA published final rule for domestic production of hemp? You got any details on that, Jim? No, but they put something out the other day. I just uh, I can't remember what they put out, but they did put out the proposal. Uh, maybe I can. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we will come back on that one in a later week. And yeah, all right. Um, we'll bring in an expert to, to on it. To show you ongoing how fast some sources can be, I flipped somebody a quick uh, text to see if they can give me a response to that. <laughs> there you live, go. Live, live. <laughs> and I did want to say uh, a couple uh, listeners, John, emailed me one today and three yesterday that they got their WIP plus payments, the fifth, last 50% on 2019 so they were very pleased so it tells me usda is beginning to clear up the avalanche of of uh applications uh particularly in a couple of states north dakota and south dakota that they were behind on for some pretty good reasons because they were trying to do so so you know many others you know things plus uh with the uh, you know covid with the i guess some employees out, out of business as well all right, let's uh, hit a couple more before we move back to our list. Um, and I lost the one I was going to. Uh, oh, there we go. From Jim Smith, uh, commenting on our discussion about multi-party. This is a multi-party system. Force coalition building and compromise is what we need. Thanks for that, uh, Yes, and, and see, the secret when you look, I was a history major in college, actually. When you look at multiple-party governments in the world by country, when you have multiple parties... A lot of times they don't have enough votes to get things done, so they have to compromise with different factions to get the necessary votes. And uh, we don't have that now because it's two-party rule almost feels like the Democrats want to go to uniparty rule with some of the, some, not all, of their proposals with getting rid of the filibuster, but I don't think they'll succeed uh, getting D.C. and Puerto Rico a state, which would add three to four Democrats senators things like that that's what multiple parties could bring you the the necessity to seek compromise to to mm-hmm. in, in order to get anything done john yep uh frank uh, following up on that globalists in china are in charge now it will make no difference ever to vote in a national election again i would not agree with that um but i think it's big 
Yeah, if you don't vote, you vote. Actually, right. My father yeah. taught me that when I was a little kid. Yeah, I again, I understand raw feelings. Sit on it a while, three, six months, and uh, around election time, you'll want to vote because you should. That's what I would say. But I, I understand raw feelings. I really do. This was a hurtful election. Yep. All right, and let's see. <laughs> um... Somebody say, yeah, Austin saying, let's get off the politics and talk about agriculture. So let's talk Absolutely. about agriculture Absolutely. for a little bit. Um, let's, uh, well, let's, let's talk about, um, well, actually we're going to talk about politics and agriculture and, and where they intersect. Um, and so let's, let's talk about uh, the, uh, the Biden team announced their, um, their coronavirus plan this week um, and laid it out. They're pushing for the additional $1,400 per person in, or for most people um, in stimulus payments. Um, Anything of particular interest to agriculture in there, Jim? Well, with food stamps, they extended the current benefits through September, the additional benefits through September. They were supposed to end in June. So anything food stamps is good for agriculture, for a host of commodities, dairy, dryable bean products, you know, things like that, meat, if you will. Uh, but that's basically it uh, for uh, agriculture. It, it's now if uh, if you qualify for uh, the child tax credit, uh, which is big, and the uh, – uh, additional uh, $1,400 payments, including college kids, uh, if you qualify. Uh, you know, that was something. But above and beyond that, there was an interesting remark by a Biden official uh, regarding CCC. Uh, John, yeah, this do, is, do this is intriguing. Do you background on that? Yeah. Well, yeah, you broke this in your newsletter this morning, and I'm, I'm dying to find out more about this, that, that we could see ccc money go to restaurants that's what they're asking out loud and so you this is one of now several things where different groups are now that they know the commodity credit corporation is a funding mechanism you're going to see more of this john as groups if they can't find money elsewhere they'll say what about usda ccc they have the foggiest idea what it is but they know that it's like a potential funding mechanism now i don't think there's legal authority to to do it but uh they would need legislative authority now, but i can see the linkage well, now, i can see it, the linkage because yeah. of the restaurant and food and things like that and as i said earlier with creative lawyers they can do wonders in 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 getting authorization i wouldn't rule it out yeah, and uh, you know, if you if it were something that were structured as um, you know purchasing food or, or you know money going into to uh, somehow enabling those restaurants to buy more beef or pork or whatever, you might be able to get it through. But yeah, direct payments to restaurants would be uh, pretty difficult. But as you said, I can see the linkage and see where the benefits agriculture would be in, in doing something like that. Yes, I do. And we, we had a caller on AgriTalk that raised the possibility of using checkoff funds for the restaurant purposes, but that raises a host of other uh, issues. So something to be at least discussed, but I think there's already a lot of very prescriptive uh, rules and regulations on checkoffs. So that would, uh, you know, face a lot of uh, um, hurdles on that. It, it- 
it would, but I thought it was a brilliant idea. I mean, it, it was, you know, but, but we'd have to what see more the money could, involved and right. things like that. You could evaporate because the checkoffs are very controversial anyway, but I've learned to respect the checkoff funding because it's market development and research, and it has funded a lot of good things. But I know when prices are down and farmers uh, have to write some checks, I, I know that can get a little raw on a topic too, but uh, it should at least be aired out as a, as a, as a policy option yeah but what what more could you do to boost the the beef and pork industries right now than to make sure that restaurants are ready to go and ready to boom once uh, we're past coronavirus yes well that could have been a line item also in the uh, different aid programs as well though so maybe see because agriculture they won't say this publicly but the ag stakeholders will say you know the ccc is a mechanism to help support at the farm level you know, and I know what you said before, indirectly, when you help the food, the restaurant industry that has just been pummeled uh, by these uh, rules, especially from certain states, the, some of the silly rules by states not to keep them open. So, uh, yes, it's an issue that's going to be aired. That's not a question of if, John, it's going to be aired. All right. Um, let's turn back a little bit to the to the Biden administration here and the transition that's going to be coming next week. And one thing of note in that transition is it looks very possible that uh, Joe Biden may have no cabinet uh, approved by the Senate by the time he is sworn in. Uh, does that present a problem? Well, it's always a problem when you don't have your top cabinet personnel in. Uh, I think there could be, let's see, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who used to be Federal Reserve Chairwoman, her hearing is the 19th, and then they're going to vote in the Senate Finance Panel. They'll vote on that, and then they'll also vote to send it to the floor. So uh, she could get in fairly quickly. I think she would be the exception rather than the rule, but you need her there for Treasury Secretary because we know under Trump how, how important Mnuchin was as his yeah. Treasury, as his, you know, Treasury you know, Secretary. But this is also why earlier in the week Biden put out, or his people put out, uh, that they were going to tap a series of uh, career people uh, to uh, make the transition more fluid until the cabinet people, you know, can be put in. And there, as we've, we've mentioned on this program before, there are scores of very uh, intelligent, uh, knowledgeable career people in almost every agency and department, John. Yeah, and indeed, um, and we're seeing a very experienced team uh, come back in, assuming they get uh, Senate approval. Um, what happens at USDA specifically in this interim before Tom Vilsack uh, presumably is, is sworn in as USDA secretary? Well, I think USDA, more than almost any other department, can can run, I won't say as a on, on, on drive, you know, but they have long-time experienced, uh, you know, career people. And so I don't see, I just don't see any major problems. I, I, I honestly don't. Will it be as smooth? Absolutely not. But, and Vilsack, of course, is working behind the scenes, and, and he knows mm -hmm. the levers to pick. He's got other people that that he worked with that are still at USDA so he can tap them. So I don't think I don't think USDA is going to miss a beat. 
Uh, and and we talk about the advantages of having this very experienced staff coming in with the Biden administration uh, because they have been challenged in this transition. Uh, they are going to be ahead of what uh, others would have been that haven't been in government before. Uh, but also, I want to bring this up. Um, Ray Starling was on AgriTalk this week and sent a, he didn't talk about this on air, but uh, sent us a note afterwards talking about that. Be, he, uh, you know, talked about appreciation for the experience this team has, but also uh, a bit of wariness that that experience means that they can hit the ground running very quickly on new regulation and, and can be very aggressive in new regulation because they don't have to find where the bathrooms are first. Uh, a lot of that has, has merit for reasoning. I will tell you, though, in the immigration area where Trump was very aggressive in the regulatory side and the executive order side, I think they're going to be surprised at how long it may take them to change some of those rules and regulations because of court test, John. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, we're in the age of, of you know, litigation. And I think you'll you'll see that for slowing things down. But even on some of these regulations, Biden has already indicated, and I think rightfully so, he wants to go a little slower on those at the first because he doesn't want to move too fast and upset uh, everything. Uh, so I think he's going to focus on, on the vaccine implementation and getting those uh, that additional aid money, part one, as we saw the $1.9 trillion announcement. But he has to get that approved by Congress first, uh, John. And that right. may not be as easy as some think. I think they're setting up a two-part two test in the Democratic-controlled House and Senate. They're going to try to get a bipartisan vote. Uh, you know, the, it'll get approved in the in the House. But the Senate, uh, depending on, boy, there's some controversial aspects of this $1.9 trillion package, including $350 billion for uh, state and local governments that Republicans really fought against because they don't want to bail out uh, the big city governments uh, not well run in New York, uh, Chicago, and California. Uh, but also the uh, upping the uh, you know minimum wage to fifteen dollars. Now, while that won't impact uh, some states, it will others. So those are two controversial things that you may not have. And he's going to need ten, ten Republicans uh, to get out of the sixty vote rule. The, well, maybe the filibuster. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, because, you, yeah, if, if they do a straight up vote on it, then, yeah, he'll have to pass the filibuster and get 60 votes in the Senate to get it through um, unless they can somehow. And I would guess that they will test the waters there. And if they think they can get the 60 votes, move it. If not, they may try a maneuver under budget re reconciliation where they only need a simple they majority. Will. That's the second of the two-part plan that I yeah. mentioned. But that's going to take time. You just don't like, like an impeachment. You just can't go like that <laughs> and get budget reconciliation. Harder than impeachment, apparently. Uh, so it's going to mean that those funds uh, will be delayed even further if they have to go the you know, budget you know, you know, uh, reconciliation route. And they only have so many times that they can tap budget reconciliation. So that, that could slow it down as well, John. But I, Democrats would use that as saying, see, we told you the Republicans are just going to block everything. So I think that they'll maybe take some things out of this package, and they can do that as leadership, yeah. in order to get the 60 votes. And I think probably that's what's going to occur. 
All right. We're getting a couple questions. I just got an update on the hemp. The final rule is to be published in February according to the action regulatory agenda released by the Trump administration. Um, There was nothing USDA released on that day or the 12th when Office of Management and Budget finished its review. Uh, there's 301 pages in the Federal Register on, on oh. this one, and that was the note I just got. But it's a little update. I would say details to follow. Okay. There you go. We'll see if we can't get a hemp expert on maybe yes, next week. Absolutely. Too, I got to give us an update. Meeting, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> As well, you should. Yeah. Uh, uh, some couple questions about CFAP3 that we'll get to in just a second, uh, circling back to our discussion about using checkoff money to support uh, the restaurant industry. Uh, Nathan commenting, food industry would need to use U.S. produced com- commodities to be fair. Well, certainly, I'm sure that would be a requirement if something like that uh, came you about. So You would hope. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Um, let me see if I can. Yeah. Uh, Gene, uh, and I assume this is in regard to CFAP3. I'd heard there was going to be land payments of $20 per acre. Is that true? Uh, yes. Uh, that's a, an easier way to do it. $20 an acre. They, 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 you know, simplified it, but that is a correct, uh, you know, uh, observation. All right. And then Stephen, uh, good morning, Jan's tuning in now. Uh, any time frame on CFAP3, blueberry grower on in Oregon here? Now, that's a good question. Now, we had, uh, let's see, um, who did we, I think, were they on AgriTalk? I can't remember so much is going on. All the shows start to run together eventually. Yes, don't they? they do. Uh, but uh, they're saying now at the end of this quarter, if not at the beginning of, this, of the next quarter, because apparently with these changes uh, in CFAP3 versus the other two, there has to be some uh, computer changes and, and other things. So, you know, I, if you've ever worked with an IT department, they're not speedy. So <laughs> they're they're kind of signaling that it's going to take time to rewrite the uh, software, if you will. Well, and isn't there a little bit of, we'll let the next guy handle it, too? It could be. It could be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then it has to go through clearing process because of those changes. And, you know, OMB is stacked up, you know, like uh, uh, trucks in Brazil at soybean harvest time, you know. Uh, they've had to chew through a lot. So that's probably, yeah, they don't ever want to say this publicly, but that's probably, you know, what's going on. So I would say later uh, uh, in the in the January, February, March quarter, or even the first quarter of the you know, second quarter, the beginning of the second quarter this calendar year. Uh, that's what I've been told. Uh, Matt, coming on that, we need government out of agriculture. Um, I I wouldn't necessarily disagree, other than to say um, food is going to cost what it is one way or another, whether you're paying for it uh, with uh, uh, government involvement or whether you're paying for it uh, at the retail price at the grocery store. It's going to adjust uh, to keep the same price no matter what you do, because that's what the cost of production is. Yeah, I, I, I understand where that caller is coming from. There are certain days I say, oh, my God. Yeah. But uh, you you need food, safe, food safety and food protection and a safety net because for those years, and we've been going through them more often than not, to where through Mother Nature has just been dastardly. So uh, that's an element of you need crop insurance. And even though farmers write huge checks for crop insurance, there is a subsidy involved. And I 
think it can be easily defended uh, as a result of food protection. That protects our food supply to have it grown and and have a cash flow for the basis to grow the next year's crop. On the farmer safety nets, although they could be improved, uh, it, it does indeed help the, uh, in many cases, the smaller to medium-sized producer, but what's wrong with that? Uh, as long, and we have payment caps, so they're not too uh, onerous. Uh, on that. So yeah, yeah, I can see it's the American public wants their food and they don't want to get into shortages where you said they don't want to pay uh, like Europe does at the supermarket or even Japan. I think we have a combination. We pay it at the supermarket and an income transfer, you know, payments by taxpayers, not the government, taxpayers. Um, and Matt follows up with agree, but hard for young people to get in. Uh, he, he's not true. necessarily. It, it is true, but government getting out isn't going to make it any easier for young people to get in either. Um, and I would argue pretty strongly that that's a, a very serious question that we need to address somehow. We just haven't found the solution yet. Well, that's the, you know, on AgriTalk, we had, I think, one of the first interviews that David Scott, the new incoming House Ag Committee chairman from Georgia, had, and he mentioned entry, uh, you know, problems into agriculture, mm-hmm. where I think, and I'm paraphrasing, John, you you heard him, that he said, you know, a lawyer or another businessman could put a, a, a sign up outside their house and start a business. You can't do that in agriculture. No. You have to have land. You have to have equipment. You have to have seed, all of which any any people in the audience knows that's not cheap. Uh, Indeed. And and one of the reasons for payment caps, I was never, I never liked payment limitations as a letter rip. But however, when I went to California one year, many years ago, a farmer told me, you know, land would never come out of on the market here if we wouldn't have payment caps where farmers uh, say, okay, well, if I can't get a payment for this, I'm going to sell this ground. So there, there are some unintended consequences <laughs> of some rules and regulations. But again, nothing's perfect, but those are some of the lessons I've learned. Yeah, indeed. Uh, all right, before we leave CFAP, uh, Jameson asks about uh, details on CFAP 3 for cattle. Cattle, it's the deep uh, cattle. I know there's a payment. Boy, I'd, I'd have to go back. I should know that. But cattle was handled quite well in the uh, CFAP 3. Additional, where they've gone yeah, back. Yeah, a per head payment. Yeah. Per head payment. And they've changed the dates on the calculation because of the complaints of how it was of, of how it was set before. Those are the primary cattle uh, the, the, you know, features of CFAP 3, which is, I continue to say, they've learned from the lessons of where they went wrong in CFAP 1 and CFAP 2, although CFAP 2 was much better than 1, their changes in CFAP 3 are even better. And I didn't have this on my list, Jim, and I'm really glad Melody is bringing this up because I think it was an interesting story uh, this week. Uh, Bill Gates owns a quarter million acres, largest ag landowner in the U.S. That that stuck up on a lot of people, including me. It's, it's uh, fairly surprising. Yes, it did. And I think some of the, I wrote about it today, and some of the, I know Nebraska was his operations. Uh, Let me see where else. I know it was my last item. (laughs) I'm just going through. I can get right to it here. 
Just but a lot, a lot of interest uh, in sustainability. Obviously, is that's been a focus yeah. of his uh, foundation. He's purchased two hundred forty-two thousand acres of farmland across eighteen states, and this is quoting Forbes magazine. So you might want to Google the Forbes magazine on this. His largest holdings are in Louisiana, almost seventy thousand acres; Arkansas, almost fifty thousand acres; and Nebraska. Uh, call it 21,000 acres. So that kind wow. of thing, he's got a lot of land in other states, you know, 15 other states. So like any producer should do in marketing, he has spread he has spread his risk, John, across this great country. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to, to track and maybe we can get him on here or AgriTalk to talk about what their ultimate plan is. One time I'll I interviewed to... his father, I remember years ago. Yeah. Hmm. And I met I met him, Bill Gates, as a young guy, because he was tallying along with his father. I, you know, that goes back <laughs> for many, you know, decades. There. I hope well, the moral to- of that story, ladies and gentlemen, is that Jim Weissmeyer <laughs> is old. <laughs> I think I want to get to the USDA reports for sure, John. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump there yeah. uh, because USDA, uh, both National Ag Statistics Service and the World Board, through. Quite a curveball at agriculture on Tuesday this week. Probably the biggest news was that uh, USDA NAS dropped uh, the the average corn yield estimate by 3.8 bushels, which is the largest November to January drop we've ever seen. Um, this, this has got a lot of people up in arms, um, understandably so. I think there's people throwing out accusations that aren't warranted, but there certainly are questions that need to be asked about how this came about, Jim. Well, you wonder. It was ear weight, I believe, in corn primarily, and uh, pod uh, weights for you know soybeans. What did they drop soybeans? Uh, what a half a bushel to fifty point two average. Uh, this uh, again, uh, I believe you're having someone from NAS on AgriTalk on Tuesday, John. I would. Yeah, uh, Lance Honig, who's head of the crops division. Um, so guy. the guy that. Yeah, good guy uh, in charge of coming up with these numbers with his team. So he'll have a lot of answers for us about how uh, they got to where they are. I think you made a good observation on AgriTalk this morning, Jim, along with Chip, about that these guys are statisticians. They they want to get this number right, um, but they also go where the data lead them. Um, which I, I, I think we can argue that the data led them to some wrong places somewhere along the path uh, yeah, this harvest I, season. Yes, I think they better get a committee to review their not not just methodology, the quality of their of of their information, and they may have to bring in some other tools. Uh, uh, even further use of satellite imagery, but even at a certain point, that gets uh, hard. But uh, uh, yeah, a reassessment needs to be made because I'll point out cotton for many months, and we've written about this. We even discussed mm-hmm. it on on you know signal to noise how our cotton good cotton growers Lubbock area. I have more than a few friends there in the cotton industry. In August, they were telling us uh, USDA is way too high on the U.S. cotton crop. And and they finally are catching up to where the cotton industry was many months ago, John. And that really shouldn't be. Now, that the, the downside of this is this is hurting USDA's credibility because we've had, we typically have had grain stocks, you know, report surprises. So, but as you said, when you have a record change in corn yield, 
between November and January annual summary, uh, that raises more questions than answers, and that should be addressed. Uh, then you have that cotton issue. I want them to try to defend. I think it was the lack of, of funding mechanism in, in the Texas uh, you know, crop surveys, from what I've been told. If that's the case, they need to true that one up. And then in the case of the World Board, now remember, those are not surveys. The World Board is more subjective. They're just like any other commodity analyst in the business. It's their thoughts. It's their assumptions on demand side. But again, this World Board was so low, so long on China's corn mm -hmm. import estimates from total. We had it on the program several times again. So, I, you know, I wrote earlier this week, what's going on at USDA? You know, you don't like to see this because farmers, ranchers, traders, uh, users, they have to have faith uh, in the credibility of USDA. So I, I think this hurts, and I, I think they're going to have to look into it. But I want to hear what, uh, you know, you know, Koenig has to say because he's, a, he's an, a, a career person, he's an expert, and uh, I think that he should be quite reasonable in, uh, you know, some of the reasons. I just hope that he, he says what they're going to do to avoid this in the future. Yeah, and um, you know, again, we're going to remain to be critical of the what came out of USDA and the World Board uh, over these last few months, and particularly in this January report, uh, or the difference between the January report and the previous months. Um, but um, I, I've got to give kudos to Lance Honig, to Seth Meyer. Um, those two in particular have been more than willing to come out and talk about how they got to the numbers and explain yes. the methodology, methodology and answer questions uh, about these numbers from farmers, not just from us, but from farmers directly. Um, and I, and Seth Meyer coming on as the new USDA economist. Um, we've had conversations with him. He is very interested in in being uh, very uh, apparent and very available to the public to talk about uh, the work of that office. So um, I think you are going to see, even, even though the conversation has been good in the last four years, I think you're going to see even more transparency in the next four years, and particularly because of those two gentlemen. Um, we have heard from uh, Owen is, uh his name's escaping me, but chairman of the world board uh, wants to come on Jack to Agritalk. Jack Janowski. Yeah. yeah. I think in the next WASD report after that, you're going to see uh, Mr. Janowski on Agritalk uh, to talk about their numbers. So uh, there is a transparency there, but um, it, it is also um, a, a, an acknowledgement that they have some public relations work to do yes. uh, to build confidence in the numbers they're providing because of some of these questions um, and, and that they need to have a conversation to build that confidence. Um, like Frank points out, he says there hasn't been faith in these numbers in more than 15 years. Um, I, I, I would agree that there have been questions about the, how they come up with these numbers. Um, but without them, John, you would be at the mercy of uh, people who can pay a lot of money to have a survey done for them, okay? So at least this is a reference point, right or wrong, yeah. I, I would say that. And two, I would really encourage any listener, especially from the producer side, to come up. I know in August, Farm Bureau always has state groups come up, and the World Board and NAS 
gives them, they go inside the lockup and they go through the procedures of the myriad of things they do with how they get the information in and overnight from various states and how it's put together at the last minute. No one knows the final number, very few people do. So I, I would behoove you to come uh, to Washington, and uh, looks like August you'll be able to with the vaccine rollouts, uh, and and see the process. You know, mm-hmm. not perfect, but once you see the process and the painstaking uh, uh, safety nets that they have to put involved in that, I think that uh, it, it'll, it'll be an educational process. Not saying that it, it should not be improved because it should. I just think they have to modernize their system. Yeah, and uh, people on here and elsewhere uh, commenting that uh, politics is involved in those in the NAS and World Board numbers. You and I would both wholeheartedly say no, no. That any questions we have are about methodology. We have absolutely no question that there is uh, not politics uh, pressuring those numbers no. at all. Would they be that dumb? No, I don't think so. You don't want a forecast to be wrong, you know, politically. No, I. I but it does raise that. Um, that angle, and that's what's sad about this, because uh, you 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 can pick a year and people complain about it, you know. Uh, and I remember I remember even when Farm Journal's John Phipps at the time said, "Are we better off without numbers?" And I just disagreed with him then, and I would disagree with anyone who says that because it's a reference point. And with pro farmer crop tours, you can go out and seek your own truth and other surveys and things like that. But I do think you need a reference point for mm-hmm. those many producers who just cannot afford private surveys or newsletters or things like that. So uh, I do think we need it as a base. And I'm going to let uh, it's going to be very important for me to hear uh, how Mr. Haney uh, you know, speaks out on, on Tuesday on AgriTalk. Yeah, again, it's a Tuesday morning's AgriTalk show. Lance Honig, who is the head of the crops division for the National Ag, Ag Statistics Service. Well, we've already gone long, Jim, so we might as well keep it going for one last item, and that's the <laughs> renewable fuel standard. Um, and it's been kind of a weird back and forth this week. We had Reuters coming out with a story saying that two sources told them that EPA was preparing to approve the majority of the uh, small refinery exemption requests sent for the 2019 year. Um, And then we come out, uh, EPA does not, at least at this point, uh, well, it doesn't look like they can do it because they've put forward um, uh, uh, motions in the federal registry for E15 pumps and to prolong uh, the RFS RFS process and really kind of punting these issues into the next administration. It's it's been a, a, a weird roller coaster ride this week, Jim. Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought it was odd when Reuters first came out with their story because I thought, you know, that doesn't square with the pending. Why would you do that when the Supreme Court ruling on whether waivers must be must qualify as an extension in 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 order to announce what they did? So, uh, and that eventually was the case. They they got to wait the Supreme Court ruling uh, again on whether waivers must qualify as an extension. So now it makes more sense to me, actually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, the, yeah, you can call it punting, but they're waiting on the Supreme Court ruling. Now, uh, what also was either misreported or not written very well is EPA has proposed small, not 
all refiners. Small refineries will have until uh, November 30th this year to comply with the 2019 RFS requirements. And so that was uh, either misreported or misconstrued too. And this morning, John, USDA is seeking public comments on modifying E15 pump label labels or removing them entirely. So that's a whole nother notice for public comments that I haven't had time to read the Federal Reserve document because they were very late for the first time in many years putting out the uh, you know Federal Register. I think they had some glitches in the you know printing process. But bottom line on biofuels, it continues to be a program that goes herky-jerky up and down. And I, I, I have learned I'm not going to believe the new services anymore on that. I've got to get it directly from an EPA official that will go public with this because I, I think this you know was misconstrued two days ago. Yeah, and I know the the biofuels groups are upset about that extension for complying with the 2019 uh, requirements. But uh, you know, until the court rules on those 2019 SREs, they can't really comply until they know exactly what the landscape is. Fair argument. Fair argument. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, well, it sounds like Farmer Tom ought to be our hemp expert. He says, on the bright side, USDA publishes final rule for the domestic production of hemp, and we won. Highlights 30-day harvest window, 1% negligence, threshold remediation, risk performance-based sampling. Boom, pow. Today we farm hashtag hemp. So there good. you go. Now that's Tom is hemp. There are knowledgeable listeners. Yeah, we have more details. So that's it. There you go. All right. Well, Jim, uh, where are you going to be watching for Signal this week? Well, the Senate, uh, you know, impeachment timeline or whether or not there will be an impeachment effort and things like that. Two, from a market perspective, uh, if this uh, bull market, we had quite a run up uh, this week, multi-year highs in corn, soybeans and and wheat. Uh, We'll see if that continues. Uh, We'll also have the inauguration. It's really fortress, uh, you know, D.C. here. It really is so they're they're encouraging no one to fly into dc for the inauguration and i don't blame them um and and uh we're gonna see that's kind of sad yeah it is very sad you know i remember going to uh two i went to reagan's inauguration uh, both of them and i went to one of bill clinton's that as a news person as a wire service person back in those days i remember sitting right down below where they Hmm. were and it was just a good feeling from both sides just it was good because I, I love the country that way. Uh, so I'll, I'll be watching that and uh, answering a lot of emails I know. Getting involved in this uh, 2.3, you know, billion dollars and see yeah. where CFAP three, you know, payments are. That that's what's on my you know list for next week. Plus a couple of uh, uh, virtual speeches. Uh, crop insurance I think is coming up. That's a favorite topic of mine and. I'm going out uh, to Missouri in February to a trip to the pork producers, Missouri pork producers. Um, don't have my vaccine yet, but hopefully I have it before I go out. So, so that's what I'm working on, John. All right. And I got to tell you, I am looking forward to Wednesday. Not not that I'm so much looking forward to, to Biden being inaugurated, but just the notion of with everything that has been going on in this country, uh, and it, it's not going to all end, but it is a bit of wiping the slate clean 
and starting over again. And and I, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing that and hopefully um, uh, the, the kind of patriotism for the country that you just expressed, Jim, uh, about being proud of, of what we do and that there is a peaceful transfer of power Absolutely. and um, that we, we do have a, a Congress and an administration and Supreme Court that uh, all are there to protect us and bring the country forward. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jim, for uh, separating the signal and the noise for, for us one more week. We appreciate it. Okay. We'll see you next and, week. And thanks to all of you for your questions and comments. Really do appreciate them. And join us back here again, 2 p.m. Eastern on the AgriTalk Facebook page for another edition of DC Signal to Noise. <laughs>